Father, we come now to you asking again, you do the work only you can do, that you would take your word and speak to our hearts and minds, that you would convict, that you would build up and encourage, that you would strengthen, that you would instruct and teach. Lord, do your work in our lives now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So at this point in the chapter, Paul is uh, transitioning to zero in a little bit more uh, on the warnings for which he has written this letter. We've talked about these some. Uh, He was concerned about false teachers who were coming into this new little church in Colossae full of new believers that they would not be lured away or pulled away by false teaching. Specifically, these teachers were Gnostics. They came in offering something that was just a little bit better, something added to, a plus one, if you will. They were combining Christianity. They were bringing in elements of Judaism. They were bringing in some ideas from Eastern religions. And they presented it all as kind of a special knowledge that they could have a deeper experience or take it to the next level in their faith in Christ. It was all couched in Christianity. And we hear ideas like this expressed in some te- from some teachers today, and it doesn't sound all that bad, and it isn't necessarily. I mean, to be honest, we are all called to grow in Christ. There should be progression, forward movement, uh, that we are being built up or growing in Him. But as we'll see today, this is not at all what the false teachers were really doing. What they were arguing for was for something more than Christ something beyond and above Christ, and adding to the work that he finished. And they were doing this, luring the Colossians using uh, smooth words and lofty speech, philosophy. In a sense, they were using their words to kind of put pressure on, to bully, a little bit of snobbery, speaking down to condescendingly, so that these new believers were almost fearful to rebut and to stand up adding their own requirements, again, bringing in Jewish elements like circumcision and other forms of asceticism, they were leading them astray. And the emphases that they had weren't necessarily all bad, but the problem was the emphasis was not on Christ. And that is something that we, too, have to be on guard against today. Many good things out there, many things we can be involved in, many things we can talk about, but we have to be on guard that we... We don't ever lose our attention and our focus on Christ. What we've been given in Christ, all that we have in Christ, we can become comfortable, even numb, um, singing songs that are familiar to us. We can forget what the words say and, uh, in our prayer life and in our, just our routine we can become numb. and We can forget what it means for all that we have in Christ. And so the big point of this, these verses I think really is summed up in verse 10. You have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. And we could take just that portion, that phrase, and just focus on that today. Of course, we're not. We're going to chew off a little bit bigger chunk. Um, So we're going to have to move to get through all of this. But let me ask you this in starting out. If we have been filled in Christ, in Him who is the head of all, all rule and authority, how much is left to fill? What is left? 
It's nothing. If we have been filled in Christ, there is no need for anything else to be added. What you and I need is to know Christ, to know Him, to know Him and all that it means to be filled by Him. Not to have a a special experience or a special knowledge. And I want for that point to really be driven home today. So as we're moving through this text, I want you to consider and think about and focus on that idea that we have everything we need for us in Christ. And so to that end, let's begin by looking in verse 8 again of Colossians chapter 2. Now as I mentioned, he's giving some warnings. There's three specific warnings. We'll look at the first one today and the next two uh, in the following week. But the first one is this, see to it that no one takes you captive. The idea that he's communicating here is, See to it that you're not kidnapped, that you're not taken away, sneakily. Uh, I couldn't help but think of Hansel and Gretel. It's been a while since I thought of Hansel and Gretel, so I thought I'd better go study up a little bit on my Hansel and Gretel. And I forgot how dark a story that is. It's not a story, at least in its original form, that we'd read to our kids today. Um, If you don't remember it, you can go look it up later. Or ask me after the service and I'll tell you. But um, one of the dark aspects of it uh, is the fact that these kids are uh, alone and in the woods. Uh, But it was at that point that the witch comes and begins to lure them. She doesn't strong arm them. She doesn't take them by force. What does she do? She offers them candies and sweets and things that look good and sound good and taste good. I would just for a minute take a side note and mention this, that the children were vulnerable. Uh, They were vulnerable because they were left alone in the woods. And we have to be particularly careful of being led astray when we're vulnerable. Um, We can all be led astray at any time, but I think we are particularly um, weakened by the pains and the struggles of this world, and it makes us all the more vulnerable at times of suffering Uh, grief, pain, brokenness in our bodies, and so forth. We need to really be on guard against that. Paul's warning is for the Colossians to be on guard against the things that sound good or are appealing that these Gnostic teachers were bringing in, these things that seem shiny and attractive. And we have seen, I mean, you, you can turn on the TV today and find people who peddle these same types of wares, offering things that sound good, a fresh anointing, a blessing of wealth or of health, a vision of God, of physical healing. And, of course, they're always tied to something, aren't they? They want a little bit of your money. So, as Solomon says, there's really nothing new under the sun. We, too, have to be on guard. And this is one of the many reasons why the message to the Colossians is still relevant for us today. So while these things were being done in the name of Christ, and again, that's what's happening today in many contexts, it's done in the name of Christ, they are not of Christ. And look at where Paul attributes this empty deceit. He says, first of all, that they're according to human tradition. Now, when we say the word tradition, uh, at least in my family, we can't help but think of Fiddler on the Roof and Tevye singing the song Tradition. 
And if you remember, at least in the movie, he is explaining why they do, you know, their traditions, and he's going around, and he's showing you, and he's singing to the camera. He goes around the farm, then he takes you into town. And at one point, he explains that, you know, this is something that we do, and he stops, and the music stops, and he says, why do we do this? I don't know. It's tradition. That's why we do it. Well, we can be kind of lured into doing some of the same things as well for nothing more than its tradition. And while not inherently bad, it can be dangerous because traditions have the ability to appear authoritative or automatically right. And this is probably most true in our families. We have traditions and you experience the clashing of such things when you get married. Uh, If you remember back to the, the first year of marriage, is it not a year of a clashing of traditions? You do it what way? You call it what? You know, and so we experience these things in our families, things that we've taken for granted all of our lives that this was the right way to do. Well, we can do the same thing spiritually as well, and we have to be on guard against being sucked into these patterns, one of the things the Gnostics were trying to do. He then adds to this that they're according to the elemental spirits of the world. And here Paul begins bringing in this spiritual component, that there is really a spiritual world. There really are spiritual forces at work. He says it this way in Ephesians 6, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And then the verse that follows that description where Paul explains that is the command, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. That is something that we're up against, that we can forget and be numb to, that we need to be reminded of. We all face spiritual warfare. One commentator writes, Today, legalism, justification by works, or any teaching, we could plug in so many things in this list, any teaching that devalues Christ's saving work on the cross can be used by the powers of darkness to hold men and women in spiritual slavery. You probably don't have to think very hard to imagine how this works because we not only know people who have been gripped by the fear of a God who will judge them, that they need to somehow do something more to appease this God, but most of us have probably experienced that kind of fear ourselves in our growth. We found that we were doing something all along out of some fearful motivation that we had forgotten what Christ had done for us. That when he said, it is finished, that's what he meant. It is finished. And so Paul is warning the Colossians rather against this as well. To counter this teaching in verse 9, he says, For in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. We've already seen Paul begin to unpack this in chapter 1, the idea of who Christ is. There's no question about who He is. He is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He is the Word made flesh. And the point here that he's driving home is that in Christ you have everything. And I could ask the same question again in a little different way. If you have everything, what what are you missing? If you have everything, what are you missing? Because of who He is, you don't need these extra things that these teachers are coming in to offer. You need to know Christ. And then he adds the words in verse 10, which I really think are the, 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 the summary 
Uh, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. The joy and the privilege that is ours is Christ in us. It is Christ in us, the hope of glory. That is our joy and privilege. That God put on flesh, came down, dealt with the curse of the law and sin, and then gave us His Spirit to indwell us. That is incredible when you think about it. That is our joy and privilege. If you look at each line of this phrase in verse 10, you will notice that one, it says, you have been, meaning it is past tense. This is not something that's going to happen in the future. You have been. It is your reality now, he's saying to the Colossians. And it is your reality now today, you who sit here, who are by faith in Christ, that you have been filled in Him. And then he uses the word filled, past tense. And we could ask the question all over again. When you're full, what is left to to add to that? The answer is nothing. In Christ you have everything you need. And then he says in him, the sole place of God's blessing is in Christ. And God has given him fully to us. Not partially. He didn't lure us along with a carrot and say, hope you can catch a little bit more. He gave him fully to us. Second Peter expresses this truth. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. The Colossians and we as well did not need what the Gnostics were offering. They already possessed all that they needed in Christ. And so we can ask the question then, what does this fullness look like? And Paul explains this in the rest of the text, that the fullness, the the answer really for this fullness is that the head of all rule and authority who fills you, Christ, who fills you, has forgiven you and redeemed you. And those are the two things that he now unpacks. The one who created everything and rules over everything grants us freedom in forgiveness and redemption. Again, this is one of those things. Okay, Seth, I thought you were going to say something really exciting here when you said that the big point, uh, so it's our forgiveness and our redemption. Because again, we just kind of get numb to those ideas of what that really means. I mean, we come to a passage like 1 John 1, 9, and, and I'm still struck by the fact that he cleanses us from all unrighteousness, everything, even the stuff that I haven't done yet. Christ has paid for and he has cleansed. There is no, <clears throat> excuse me, no need to fear Him, there's no condemnation before Him, but there's also no need to fear this spiritual element as well which was being brought in, the domain of darkness, the accusations of Satan. We share in Christ's victory. What He has won is ours. He gets gets the victory and He shares it with us. So then in verses 11-12, He describes how this victory is won. He writes in verse 11, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So here Paul brings together circumcision and baptism in describing how we have been crucified with Christ, how we have died to ourselves, because both signify or show the same thing, he says. Both are signs and seals of the covenant promises of God and demonstrate our death with Christ. Circumcision in the the nation of Israel was applied to eight-year-old males born into the people of God. 
So infants, before they could do anything, the sign of circumcision was set upon them. It was also applied to adult proselytes who came into the community of faith. As Presbyterians, we follow the same pattern, applying the sign and the seal of baptism to both those who are born to believers as well as those who join us by faith. Neither circumcision or baptism have any saving power, but both point to the saving power of God. Not the individual worth or works or merit of the person, but to God and what He has done. Both are based on the promises of God, neither merit anything, and yet some attempt to attach some kind of meritorious work to baptism. There are some who argue that baptism is necessary for salvation. Some argue that baptism is the, you know, since the celebration of the individual of their decision to follow Christ. Others hold that baptism appeases God or earns them or their infant some favor uh, that they, they want their child baptized or they want to be baptized because they think somehow it makes them more favorable to God. But baptism is about God's promises and grace toward us. It is about putting His glory on display. So one of the things that was happening in Colossae is these false teachers were insisting that the Gentile believers needed to be circumcised. And Paul's point here is that circumcision has no merit before God. It had been a sign given by God for the community of faith to point to the work that God would do. It was commanded. It was commanded in the the community of the Jews. But as Jesus came and fulfilled both the the ceremonial laws and the civil laws, we are no longer under the command to be circumcised. So when false teachers then come in commanding that, adding that to the requirement, Paul shows how... That act has no meritorious work. And instead, he describes the circumcision of the heart made without human hands. This is a work of God. It's a work that's done inwardly. It is a work where we die to our flesh, or as Paul states, putting off the body of flesh. He then describes baptism in the same spiritual sense. In verse 12, "...having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God." It is here that we see how God applies the powerful work of forgiving our sins and redeeming us. It is through faith. Through trusting Him. The forgiveness and the redemption that we said is is how we understand this fullness that He's describing is the work of God in and through us by faith. All the false teachers were attempting to do in leading them astray was attached to outward experiences and performances, things that they could do. And Paul brings them back here and shows them how God has done the work in their hearts and it is demonstrated by faith. The internal saving power of Christ now fills them, leaving no room for them to attempt to add anything to the finished work of Christ. And then he then drives the point home. Or we could say he nails the point in verses 13 to 15. He says, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Paul reminds them of their previous state. You were enemies. You were dead. 
What can a dead person do? Nothing. There is no hope for a dead person except a miracle. Uncircumcision of your flesh, he says, alluding to the fact that the Colossians were apart from God even in the promises, once one step further removed. This had been true of the Ephesians as well when he wrote, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at the same time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope in the world without God. This is true of us as well. We were God's enemies. We were far off from Him. We didn't have hope. And yet, what does God do? In His great mercy, even though we were dead and separated from Him, God, and look in verse 13, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. God gave us life. Took out the heart of stone, gave us a heart of flesh, breathed new life into us. We were reborn. He did it by forgiving our sins and redeeming us. And then notice how Paul changes. He's been using the second person plural throughout this, saying you, 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 and here he switches and now says us because he is, in a sense, praising God in his writing and saying, me too, me too. I too am a benefit of this. And then he explains the legal satisfaction of Christ's death on the cross in verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us, there you see it again, us, with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In a sense, this was a spiritual IOU, a debt, a record of debt that we could never repay. Christ took it, he paid for it, and it says that he nailed it to the cross. And then the final thing that Paul says is that then he triumphs over the spiritual forces. And the way that he phrases this here in verse 15, it says, putting them to open shame by triumphing over them would have recalled in every hearer's mind what the Roman uh, generals and other military leaders did at that time when they conquered a people. They brought the prisoners back and they paraded them through to show their victory but it also brought open shame to those who had been conquered. This is what Christ has done to Satan and his demons and why we have no reason to fear him. And so as we come to this table today, the table of the Lord, we come as those who have received great grace from God, those who were spiritually dead, who have been given new life, and who have been forgiven all of our sins, cleansed from all unrighteousness, and redeemed from this curse, this IOU that we could never repay. And not only has Christ dealt with things legally, but He has given us Himself. In Him, we have everything. So in this bread and this cup, we remember that our sins were forgiven, that they have been completely forgiven. Everything has been dealt with. It is finished. It is done. The legal charge, the debt that was owed, has been nailed to the cross, and we bear it no more. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, your word, that shows us that we have everything we need in Christ. Lord, would you help us to believe that, to grow in our understanding of that, for our our, our hearts to grasp it, our minds to understand it just a little bit more, that we don't need anything else 
Particularly, we don't need to add our works and our, our attempts at meritorious acts to it. Christ has done everything. Now we look to Him as we come to His table to feed us that we are in this table reminded everything we need is in Him. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.